distributed stream processing systems are used to read large volumes of data and perform operations across those data streams. These stream processing systems often build off of the MapReduce algorithm for collecting and aggregating large volumes of data, but instead of processing a calculation over a single large batch of data like MapReduce does, these systems process data on an ongoing basis. There are so many different stream processing systems for this same use case. There's Storm, Spark, Flink, Heron, there's many others. Why is that? When there seems to be such of a consolidation around the Hadoop MapReduce batch processing technology, why are there so many stream processing systems? One explanation is that aggregating the results of a continuous stream of data is a process that very much depends on time. At any given point in time, you can take a snapshot of the stream of data, and any calculation based on that data is going to be out of date by the time that your calculation is finished. There's a latency between when you start calculating something and when you finish calculating it. And there are other design decisions for a distributed stream processing system. What data do you keep in memory? What do you keep on disk? How often do you snapshot your data to disk? What's the method for fault tolerance? What are the APIs for consuming and processing this data? Maximilian Michaels has worked on the Apache Flink and Apache Beam stream processing systems and currently works on data infrastructure at Lyft. Max joins the show to discuss the trade-offs of different stream processing systems and his experiences in the world of data processing. If you are curious about stream processing systems, we've done lots of episodes about them, and you can find all of these past episodes by going to softwaredaily.com and searching for the technologies that we discuss or the companies that are mentioned. And you can also find all of this information in our mobile apps that contain all of our episodes. You can listen to all 1,500 plus of our episodes in the apps. And if there's ever a subject that you want to hear covered, you can leave a comment on this episode or a different episode. You can send us a tweet at software underscore daily. We'd love to hear from you. Over the last few months, I've started hearing about Retool. Every business needs internal tools, but if we're being honest, I don't know of many engineers who really enjoy building internal tools. It can be hard to get engineering resources to build back office applications, and it's definitely hard to get engineers excited about maintaining those back office applications. Companies like DoorDash and Brex and Amazon use Retool to build custom internal tools faster. The idea is that internal tools mostly look the same. They're made out of tables and dropdowns and buttons and text inputs. Retool gives you a drag-and-drop interface so engineers can build these internal UIs in hours, not days. And they can spend more time building features that customers will see. Retool connects to any database and API. For example, if you want to pull in data from Postgres, you just write a SQL query. You drag a table onto the canvas. If you want to try out Retool, you can go to retool.com slash sedaily. That's R-E-T-O-O-L dot com slash sedaily. And you can even host Retool on-premise if you want to keep it ultra-secure. I've heard a lot of good things about Retool from engineers who I respect, so check it out at retool.com slash sedaily.
Maximilian Michaels, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. I'm proud to be here. <laughs> well, I'm proud to have you. <laughs> and I want to talk to you about stream processing. You are something of an expert in that area. And when I started doing this podcast in around 2015, there were many different streaming frameworks that were seeing use. There was Storm, there was Spark Streaming, there was Flink, there was Heron, there were several others. Why are there so many solutions for distributed stream processing? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Actually, when I go out and give a talk about you know Apache Flink or Apache Beam, or whenever I see somebody else give a talk, that question usually comes up. And it's it's a very good question because there are a lot of stream processing analytics um, frameworks out there, especially now in the open source. So I think the answer to this is that stream processing, although not like completely new technique to process data has just in the recent years seen a huge uprise because we have the computing power, we have the data and just the applications, you know, the demand for applications is there. And, and that's why also demand for stream processing is there. So I think going back to, or just enumerating some popular frameworks, I can explain why there are so many. So, First of all, Storm is probably like the oldest one that is, you know, known in the in the open source. And it really became popular in 2013, 2014, and it had been around much longer. I think like uh, and Nathan Martz is the name of the in original creator and he had a company called Backtype and that company got acquired in 2011 by Twitter who obviously had a great interest in like streaming applications. So they kind of tickered around with it internally and they figured it's sort of too limited because the execution model doesn't scale well enough. It doesn't provide the guarantees that they need it at scale. So they, they figured they just, you know, keep the API the same, but they rebuild the internal design of uh, Storm. And that's how they developed Heron, which first was just an internal closed source software, but was then released around 2015. And yeah, and I think this is like a popular pattern. And you see this also with, for example, SAMHSA, which Apache SAMHSA, which was developed at LinkedIn, I think around the same time, you know, and it served also like a special need for stream processing at LinkedIn and later was, you know, sourced. They had, you know, slightly different requirements. They also had, you know, Kafka coming up internally and they were more worried about, you know, ex exactly once guarantees and integrating with, you know, Hadoop's scheduler called Yarn. <laughs> and when I start talking about this, I really, there are a lot of details to this, but um, I'm just going to try to keep it um, short. So then there's a Flink which goes back, I did some research before, it goes actually back until like 2009. It's a research project at Seriously? Berlin. Yeah, but you know, nobody knew that back then. It wow. was like a researcher project, you know. But the company was created in 2014, which I was also part of for the first two years. And you know, that obviously began the rise of Link, which I would say is probably the most sophisticated streaming framework and, and most complete in the open source. Maybe that's a bit biased, but I think there are good reasons for saying that. Uh, we can 
we can dive that and in, dive into that um, later. And well, it really embraced like streaming at core built into the runtime and could, you know, but still could handle batch uh, data sets, which it was used also for in the beginning. Now that everything shifted more towards streaming. Yeah. And then the Spark, of course, Spark was, you know, Berkeley project, uh, more focused on batch processing. I think Spark never really made it to stream processing to cover like everything that stream processing needs to do because they kind of internally kept their RDD design, which is, is really elegant and, and, you know, perfect for batch, but is really hard to scale for streaming because it's essentially like it breaks down to having uh, mini batches and which are for real-time streaming applications. I mean, they come with some, some drawbacks, not to say you can't use it for streaming, but I think Flink has the more, I mean, without getting into the technical detail, it has the more like native streaming approach, which if I'm being honest, for some applications, although that's being addressed at the moment, it's actually uh, worse than Spark, like batch processing. I think Spark has like, has some advantages there for sure. Just to um, go finish the circle here. So then it is Beam. And uh, Beam is a project I'm involved with and I, I really love. It's It came out of Google and in, in 2014 as like Google Cloud, as the Google Cloud SDK. And it has like had like a different focus. It, it didn't want to replicate a complete runtime also because there was, you know, Google Cloud Dataflow and all the other stream processors already. So the idea was more like to combine them all, like to create a unified API and uh, allow just use one framework to to execute on all these execution engines that they were that were already there in the open source. So and then once that was there, the project figured it also needed to build multi-language support, which to that degree I think has not been done by other projects yet. So I think Beam is a really, really interesting project in that sense. Also, honorable mention for <laughs> to um, Apex from DataTorrent. I don't know if you come across it. They were also early on. They I think they also got a lot of things right and had a really interesting, you know, interesting framework for stream processing. But unfortunately, you know, they released it to open source and the company doesn't really exist anymore behind it. So yeah, I think that's that's more like history now. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you've given a nice survey of all the different streaming frameworks. And I think one way to describe, I think there's no easy answer for why there are so many of these things, other than the fact that there are just, this is just a very big problem. And the idea of large distributed parallel processing over big data sets, it's such a heterogeneous problem that you're going to get a variety of different solutions because different companies are going to be looking and different open source contributors are going to be looking at this problem from different perspectives. Now, I want to frame this conversation a little bit in terms of your own personal expertise. And uh, you've spent a lot of time in the Flink community. You've spent a lot of time in the Beam community. So let's start by zooming on Flink and the Flink processing model. So Flink keeps all of its state in memory in order to have some low latency processing. And the system periodically snapshots the state of each of the nodes to disk. Can you give a more detailed description for what Flink keeps in memory and what Flink snapshots to disk when it's doing its processing? So I think we have to differentiate there between what 
Flink keeps in memory or in disk while it's processing and what is being written to disk or persisted when you take a checkpoint. Those are two, two different things, I would say, because when you have a streaming pipeline, I mean, the first problem you're dealing with before you want to ensure that it's exactly once and that it's checkpointed is that it's able to run, you know? I mean, if something crashes, then yeah, you want to be able to restore, but but when you run, you have you have a data that is in memory, obviously. Like when you, whenever whenever you run an app, like any sort of application, it has it needs memory. So what Flink has by default, it has you know the, the user code and the application logic in memory. It and like if you don't do anything, if you just want to have a like normal Java program, you would just you know create your variables and everything would be memory. But Flink has like a dedicated interface that allows you to configure after you've written the pipeline, how the state, the application state is stored. So by default, to be more concrete, that is going to be in memory. Everything is going to be in memory. So obviously you run into problems with that. You know, imagine you keep, uh, let's say a list of users or a map of users and, you know, session data in memory, and you have a million users, you know, that could, you know, explode and consume way too much memory. And the thing is, you don't always need, you know, although you have, of course, you have the distributed model of Flink where you have a large number of instances to scale your memory, but you don't always need all the memory. So what Flink actually has and what you can configure is called uh, a state backend, um, you can configure the state backend to store a flush memory to disk whenever necessary. Um, this is implemented with RocksDB, but you know this is a technical detail. But if somebody wants to look at it, uh, RocksDB state backend, and that basically is like a like a database. It's intelligently handling, you know, loading data into memory whenever it's needed, and you know, flushing back to disk when you know you you haven't seen this user for a while. And this is the first step to achieving robust processing, stream processing, I'd say. And then the next or the next part of your question is sort of, you know, what do I do to persist that? And Flink has checkpointing built in that is able to write all the state to priority that is necessary to restore the pipeline at any point in time to disk or to any other storage system that you want. You know, this is pretty tricky. And that's something I think that took a lot long time to get right. Because obviously you could just halt your entire stream processing pipeline and then do it the checkpoint or safe point of your of your memory. But that would cause a lot of backlog and latency. So what Flink has developed is a way to asynchronously and but also do it in a in a way that it produces deltas. So you don't always, you know, checkpoint the entire state, but you only checkpoint, you know, what actually changed. So Fling has, you know, I think the most sophisticated stream processing semantics in that regard when it comes to handling memory and checkpointing. It's worth discussing the differences between stream processing systems and data warehousing systems, because both of these systems are used for big end memory calculations. So... I'd like to provide some contrast between stream processing and data warehousing. How are these types of systems used differently? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. So I think 
stream processing and data warehousing are not fundamentally different, but data warehousing is is a more complete framework for loading data, aggregating data, analyzing it, and transforming it. Where stream processing is a specific, it can be a specific part of a data warehouse, but just tailored towards real-time data. So the way I think data, data warehouses generally work is that they pull in data from various sources and stream processing could be, or a Kafka topic could be, you know, one source that you use, but then it's not usually used for analytics that are performed, you know, not real time or near real time, but, you know, usually with a couple hours delay or it doesn't have the same guarantees that stream processing would provide. But I think I would understand stream processing to be just a, you know, a part of a data warehouse in the sense that it's a source for real-time data. And yeah, that's, that's how I see the both, you know, complement each other. The start of the new year is a great time to evaluate your career. It's a time to consider your salary. It's a time to consider your job or maybe consider changing your entire career path. Seen by Indeed provides a path to new career opportunities while reducing the pain of the traditional job search process. Seen puts tech candidates in front of thousands of companies like Grubhub, Capital One, and PayPal across more than 90 cities. Just create your profile from your resume, and they'll match you to the right roles based on your needs. Every Seen candidate also gets free access to technical career coaching, resume reviews, mock interviews, and even salary negotiation tips to seal the deal. Join today and get a free resume review when you go to bseen.com slash daily. That's B-E-S-E-E-N dot com slash daily, D-A-I-L-Y. Seen by Indeed is a tech-focused matching platform. If you're ready for a new job, you're ready for Seen by Indeed. Join today and you get a free resume review when you go to bseen.com slash daily. That's B-E-S-E-E-N dot com slash D-A-I-L-Y. Thanks to Seen by Indeed for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I want to talk through a, an example use case of stream processing. So I think a common use case is something like clickstream data, where you have a high volume of data, maybe it's coming into a Kafka cluster, and you want to continuously ingest data from the Kafka cluster into a stream processing pipeline, and then you want to perform some stream processing over it and then perhaps write it back to Kafka. Let's say it's an unbounded set of clickstream data coming in. Describe how Flink could be used to process that data. What you describe is actually like the prime use case of Flink. You know, when the stream processing API started to emerge in Flink and people started using it, we put a lot of effort in, in the Flink community to make it work good with Kafka because that was, you know, the, what everybody wanted to use. In Flink, so Flink itself has very good support for Kafka, both reading from Kafka and writing to Kafka. That's called like consumer producer. I'm sure you're aware of it. So in this, you know, why is the support good? Well, 
when you create a connector for an external system, it's obviously, you know, error prone, you know, because you have to know all the, you know, quirks of, you know, Kafka or any other system that you're trying to integrate with. So Flink does a good job there, but it also is able to work with Kafka in the sense that Kafka is, you know, offset based, an offset based log. So when Flink checkpoints, it can take note of the Kafka offset. And when you restore a pipeline, you start reading from from that offset that was active during during the checkpoint. So how would that look typically in a Flink application? You basically write, you, you instant the, the Kafka consumer with some properties. And then, you know, you have a data stream. That's the data type that you use in the Flink API. For example, data, data stream of strings. And then you apply or your Flink processing logic, like map filter, group by, and then you write back to Kafka. So it's it's pretty straightforward. You can find it on the website, on the Flink website, if you want to look at take a look at it. One thing that Flink didn't have for a long time was integration with with the Kafka producer to to checkpoint to a Kafka topic. So the like the exactly ones guarantees were only sort of valid within Flink and when reading from Kafka, but not when producing to Kafka. But this has been addressed uh, in newer Flink versions where, you know, also Kafka itself needed to find a way for systems or external systems to, you know, commit something to Kafka so that you really have an end-to-end exactly once guarantee, uh, which is really useful. If you if you have an analytics, analytics process, you want to make sure that if you have a counter, you know, and you you have to restore your pipeline due to, to a failure, you are sure that that counter is correct and not, you know, off by one or off by many, you know. And, you know, that's something that Storm, for example, couldn't do, you know, and also Spark, Spark Streaming initially couldn't do. I think I believe they have fixed that with the structured streaming approach that is, is new in, in Spark. So that's basically it, yeah. And... I've heard of several people who use this kind of application. They use Flink for this kind of application where they're reading high volumes of data coming off of Kafka, and then they're doing some stream processing and writing it back to Kafka. One thing I don't understand is, why wouldn't you use Kafka streams for that application? I guess more generally, how do Kafka streams contrast with Flink? That's a very good question. That also comes up often and it makes perfect sense, right? If you have a Kafka cluster and if you don't really have a lot of, let's say, compute intense applications, then why not use Kafka Streams? And to be honest, I think Kafka Streams is great because it's so easy to set up, you know, again, when you have a Kafka cluster, uh, you basically just include a library in your, your Java application and then you go off to doing stream streaming analytics without any need to set up a Flink cluster or another system, you know, to to deploy that applications. I think that Kafka Stream is a great library. However, and I think even the Kafka folks have pointed that out, if you're into compute state-heavy applications, then Flink is the more robust alternative. And I've seen and heard from many Kafka users that 
when they do expensive computations, like lots of shuffles, network shuffles, and when they have also, yeah, compute intensive calculations, timers, all that stuff that you want to do in a sophisticated streaming pipeline, then Flink is usually a more ro robust alternative. So I'd say for simple applications, Kafka Streams is perfect. And whether or not you need all the power of Flink, then depends, you know, how evolved your application gets. Let's get into talking about Apache Beam, because that's what you've been working with more recently. Apache Beam is a data processing system that originated at Google, and the goal is to provide a system that can do stream processing on top of a variety of stream processing engines. Can you describe the vision for Apache Beam? So Beam, the vision of Beam was not to create another open source framework and runtime that, you know, we have already so many of. Instead, the idea was to combine all the existing runtimes and have a unified, easy-to-use API to basically work with all of them. That was the initial idea. And um, in the beginning, you know, when Google came out with Beam, the idea was just to do that for Java. Although always, I think the idea was to, was to expand to other languages, but it was just Java in the beginning, and that was kind of convenient because all the other systems in the open source were written in Java. So the idea is really that you have a single API for both batch and streaming. Many systems have a separate API for batch and streaming. So basically, when you do the switch or you want to rewrite the logic to be streaming, you have to use a different API. Beam wanted to fix that, so there's just one API. And you use that API to write it, and then you just basically provide a flag during execution saying, hey, I want this to be run on Flink or Google Cloud Dataflow or Spark. And then we ensured that the execution works the same on all of these by a very extensive set of tests that we have inside Beam. They're called Validates Runner. And they basically check for all the features that Beam has and ensures that the runner uh, supports it. I should probably tell you what a runner is. A runner is basically the part of Fling that does the translation. Beam, I mean, from Beam to you know the execution engine that you choose to run your Beam program with. And just to complete the picture here, later on, once you know we had all these execution engines supporting the Beam API. We figured we needed something more than Java. So. Yeah, Google came out with the Python API and supported that in Google Cloud Dataflow. And then it took, you know, now about two years to to have a full runtime support for supporting multiple languages. So we have we have Python and Go now and Java, of course. And we have managed to rewrite most of the runners so that they support all these languages. And I think that's something that gets me really excited because being able to use Python, for instance, unlocks a, a completely new set of applications because we have all these libraries like NumPy, Pandas, TensorFlow, you know, all these people who love to write Python, but they just hate Java or, you know, it's too complicated for them and they just want to get their work done. So now we have a, a Python API, which 
supports stream processing with Beam. So that, I think that's one of the most exciting things in Beam today. Talking more about the roots of Beam, Beam's associated with the Google Dataflow paper. Can you give an overview of some of the concepts of the Dataflow paper and how they impacted Beam? Yeah, I think the Dataflow paper had a lot of impact on streaming semantics in general. So not only on Beam, but also on Flink. So back in 2014, when Google came out with the Cloud Data for SDK, Flink was building uh, the or finalizing their streaming API. It was not so 100% clear, you know, what is stream processing even? Storm tried to do it and had very quirky API, let's say. I mean, most people don't find it very intuitive. So it was not clear, you know, what should you be able to do in a streaming pipeline? That data flow paper basically described the model or the semantics that a stream processing system should, you know, support. So in that, there are things like parallel collections, how is, you know, data distributed when you process in the cluster. There's all the operations that Beam supports, um, like parallel do, which is um, basically the functionality where you put your code in Beam. It has, you know, support for, or it describes how timers work. Basically, where you can, when you see an event, you can set a timer to be, you know, notified once, you know, once a certain time has passed or an event arrives. And it has uh, watermarks, which are an important concept that, you know, both Flink and Beam adopted. Maybe we should explain what watermarks is. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. So a watermark is sort of, many people don't find it that intuitive, but I think it's not that hard to explain. So in stream processing, when you read data and you want to associate time with that data, you could just take the current time that you're seeing on the machine, right? But, you know, when you have a set of machines, then, you know, they might not be in sync with time. So that's sort of inconvenient. And also the time on your machine doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, with the data itself. Most data usually has a timestamp associated. So you want to be able to use that timestamp. And because time is kind of a relative, when you process fast, you know, if you use processing time or time on your computer, then you, know, you press fast, then less time elapses. If you're slow, then time elapses slower, you know, from the, from the application perspective. So what watermarks are, they are basically a time indicator within a streaming application. So what that means is the watermark passes from the source where you we ingest your data throughout the entire pipeline. And the sources basically, they send out these watermarks priority when they think they have seen all data or a particular time span that you're interested in. So basically, I mean, theoretically, you could wait forever, you know, because you could always receive some data at a later timestamp. But the watermark basically tells you, okay, now I'm confident enough that the time is now, you know, I've seen enough timestamps where my data is, you know, at 10, you know, and now I'm sending out a 10. So that kind of triggers the whole, that allows all the operators who might be holding back data, you know, waiting for timestamp 10 to then kick off their execution. Another concept that is in that paper, which I should mention is windowing. And that's basically the idea that you group your data according to time. 
or number of elements. Usually it's time and that's where the watermark uh, also comes into play. So in, for example, early systems like Storm, there was no notion of a window. You would just, you know, receive all your data and then you could do whatever with it. You could all it could implement your own logic. But in Beam or Flink, we have windows which allow us to group data and allow for the execution to only kick off when we know that we have received all the data for a particular time span for a particular user. The windows are not only they're not only by time but also by key. If the data is you know partitioned, then we also have by key. So let me give an example to see to, to explain what that means. So let's say I have a click stream and I'm trying to count how many users, how, you know, how many links were clicked for every user. Let's say I want to do that. So, and I want to do that, you know, for the last hour, let's say, or for the last minute, let's say. So I would just, you know, receive all the click events that users produce from a Kafka topic, for, for instance. And then I would define a one minute window and, you know, use the user ID to partition the data. And when I receive the watermark and I just check, you know, or Flink's internally checks that if one minute has passed and then I receive all the events that were produced within that minute and I can, you know, calculate, uh, I can just count them and emit the count for the user. And then I, yeah, could have a nice dashboard telling me, you know, this user, you know, clicked on most links or something like that. I could rank them. So that that's one example how windowing would work. So do watermarks define the windows? Watermarks are like a time indicator. And to give a better example there, I think to understand watermarks, you need to also understand uh, event time versus processing time. So the processing time is just the time you are seeing on your computer while you're processing data, you know, and the event time is the time that is contained in your data itself. So the, what the watermark does, because we don't have, you know, this natural notion of time progressing in event time, you know, and just not like a clock, you know, always progresses in processing time because we, we need a way to tell, you know, what time it is. And that's what the watermark is. So the watermark is basically sent from the sources through the entire pipeline and it can be held back. If we are currently doing processing in one of the operators, it might be held back for the downstream operator. And um, so it basically traverses through the pipeline and tells, for example, window computation when it has seen all the data with for a window time span. So when I have a window from, let's say, 3 to 4 p.m., then when the watermark arrives at 4 p.m., I know that I've seen one hour of data now, of event time data, and then I can kick off the computation for that window. That's basically what a watermark does. The tricky part about watermarks is how do we generate them? That's probably the most problematic about the watermark because we could just send like the watermark, the watermark is just a timestamp, right? So we could just send a watermark directly when we've seen a timestamp in our data, right? When I see 
an event that is from 4 p.m., let's say, like in our example, I would just immediately forward it and to the subsequent operators. But if I do that immediately, what about, let's say, events that I receive later? Because let's say you have an application where, I mean, the best example is always a gaming application. You have it on your phone, you know, you're offline, you're in the subway, you lose connection, and then you get out, get out and then all these events are, are being sent. So you want to be able to deal with some skew in the, in the event time. So what you typically do is that you define a threshold that you're comfortable with. So you would say, you know, I accept an hour delay or something like that. That's basically a way that you can have some out of orderness in your data. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I understand. When you start a business, you don't have much revenue. There isn't much accounting to manage, but as your business grows, your number of customers grows. It becomes harder to track your numbers, and if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. NetSuite is a cloud business system that saves you time and gets you organized. As your business grows, you need to start doing invoicing and accounting and customer relationship management. NetSuite is a complete business management software platform that handles sales, financing, and accounting, and orders, and HR. NetSuite gives you visibility into your business, helping you to control and grow your business. NetSuite is offering a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash sedaily. That's netsuite.com slash sedaily. You can get a free guide on the seven key strategies to grow your profits. As your business grows, it can feel overwhelming. I know this from experience. You have too many systems to manage. You've got spreadsheets and accounting documents and invoices and many other things. That's why NetSuite brings these different business systems together. To learn how to get organized and get your free guide to seven key strategies to grow your profits, go to netsuite.com slash sedaily. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash sedaily. Talking more about what Beam actually does. So Beam is a system for being able to express a data pipeline and choose different underlying execution engines. Why would I want to choose different underlying execution engines? Why would a data pipeline have different performance times on a different underlying execution engine like a Flink versus Spark or Storm? That's a very good question. I think Many people who sort of bought into a single or like one execution engine ask themselves, you know, why should I use Beam now? It I'm fine with what I have. You know, Flink works reasonably well. Why why should I use Beam now? Well, I think for many people the answer is, you know, don't use Beam, just use Flink directly. However, I mean Beam does offer a bit more flexibility. You mentioned already 
you can swap out the execution engines. For many people and decision makers, that's that's like an interesting aspect because let's say you're in a Google Cloud, you're using Beam, Google Cloud Dataflow, which is you know supports Beam. You maybe run into some issues there. You your client demands that you need to be on prem. So then you can then just take the same code and run it in the open source on you know on a, any cluster on the, any Flink cluster, for instance. So that gives you flexibility. Same, same also the other way around. If you if you maintain your own cluster, maybe you want to run a new pipeline, a new instance of a pipeline in Google Cloud because you you have that Flink cluster, but you want to try out something new in the cloud in Google Cloud. That's just an easier way then. So. Basically, yeah, support for multiple execution engines is interesting for some people, not for all. Then we have the unified API, which I think is also a compelling argument because you just write once for batch and streaming, and then you you basically just need to flick a switch uh, to run that in either batch or streaming and also to deploy it on an execution engine, like I mentioned. And probably the third reason is the multi-language support. I think that's probably the most compelling argument nowadays because there is simply no really good solution for running Python, scaling Python pipelines like Beam offers it at the moment. So you currently work at Lyft. Tell me about the data pipelines at Lyft. Sure. I work with Lyft or started working with Lyft because I think it is really interesting what they're doing with both Beam and Flink. They've been a Flink user for several years now. It was their way to build a real-time analytics system at Flink. And for now, I think almost two years, they they are also Beam users, which came naturally to them. And that ties into the previous question that, you know, why would you use Beam? They could because they had already the Flink uh, architecture in place and all the knowledge to run and maintain Flink. So they could just add Beam with Python support on top um, to enable a completely new use case. And you have to understand with Lyft as a, as a Python shop, essentially, that's what everybody says. So there are not a lot of well, let's say the majority of the people like to write Python rather than, than Java. So Beam is just the perfect tool in that regard. And also there is a lot of existing Python code, which even if you know somebody wanted to you know, port everything to Java, it would be really hard you know, because of you know, TensorFlow and all the computational libraries that you have in Python. Um, yeah, I think a lot of frameworks in the past tried to implement Python support but usually did it in a way that it was would, for example, use Jython, like Java execution of Python code, which never really supported all the use cases because in Python you have these C libraries like TensorFlow and NumPy, which require yeah a native Python interpreter, the C Python interpreter. And yeah, Beam could do it, so... That's why Lyft started using Beam. To be honest, I don't have full insight in you know all the different teams, what they're doing. I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to talk about this, but I know Flink is used for you know any kind of real-time analytics. So they use also Flink SQL. So they have then various 
basically build an easy way to do deploy SQL applications to get real insights into the driving data, for example, all the data that Lyft collects. I can't really go into details there, but I, I can I can talk a little bit more about Beam. So the Beam layer at Lyft is responsible for the real-time price factor calculation, basically. Lyft has, has also given talks about this in the past. So basically what we do is we get all this data at Lyft and to accurately predict then basically the price factor for a given a region that you know somebody you know wants to go to or is ordering a lift from we take this data we do you know feature generation model training and model execution you know basically what many other companies do also these days but it's quite pretty exciting for for lift because before they were operating on a python you know legacy stack which can't really tell you too much, but it's basically a pile of, of scripts which is deployed via Airflow. And so Beam is a more scalable way to deploy these price factor calculations and also is enables real-time you know, price calculation, which before the model could be you know, old and based on old data. So now we have real-time prediction of the price. Cool. So as we begin to wrap up, let's zoom out. Tell me about the other areas of the data engineering ecosystem that are interesting to you. Yeah, I think I'm particularly interested in in the Kubernetes community. I think what they've done is remarkable. A couple of years ago, you know, there were technologies like Mesosphere, Mesosphere, the company, and DCOS, their product, which still exists today. It's a good product for sure. And there was Docker Swarm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot, a bit more competition. But Kubernetes seems to have like conquered them all. It's just a huge community, and it's just, it's just something I, I just find the tech impressive and exciting to see this becoming mainstream. That every company has their Kubernetes cluster. I think working with it, I, there's still a lot that could be easier to configure and to set up. And it would be really interesting to see the community build a layer on top of Kubernetes, where it's not just like some, you know, some infrastructure tool, but I guess that goes into the direction of serverless. So make it really easy to, to deploy your functions, to define dependencies between functions and data and make it really easy to deploy that. I think we see this already, but I want to see this uh, become a bigger pattern. And that's also something where I think Beam and Flink could improve. And I'm seeing actually both projects doing something in that regard. Flink with SQL, Beam also has SQL, by the way, which works quite similar. So that enables analysts who are not, you know, programmers to do analytics uh, themselves. I think that's great. And Flink has moved into the direction of stateful functions. Maybe you have heard about this. It's a kind of new way to write Flink applications where you yeah, where you basically compose it out of functions that talk to each other, which is also, I think, it might be a better or more comprehensible way to, to, to write streaming applications in the future. We have to see. <laughs> really, I think these days being like a... <laughs> let's say 
engineer that is, you know, involved uh, a lot with architecture and hard to get around concepts for average users. I really wish using all these products would be much, much, much easier. I am really just sometimes ashamed how hard it is to use this stuff. I mean, when you know it, it's not hard, but when I see people, you know, struggling with it, I always wish things would be easier. <laughs> so I think we can do a lot there to improve. Max, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. You probably do not enjoy searching for a job. Engineers don't like sacrificing their time to do phone screens, and we don't like doing whiteboard problems and working on tedious take-home projects. Everyone knows the software hiring process is not perfect, but what's the alternative? TripleByte is the alternative. TripleByte is a platform for finding a great software job faster. TripleByte works with 400-plus tech companies, including Dropbox, Adobe, Coursera, and Cruise Automation. TripleByte improves the hiring process by saving you time and fast-tracking you to final interviews. At triplebyte.com slash sedaily, you can start your process by taking a quiz, and after the quiz, you get interviewed by Triplebyte if you pass that quiz. And if you pass that interview, you make it straight to multiple on-site interviews. And if you take a job, you get an additional $1,000 signing bonus from Triplebyte because you use the link triplebyte.com slash sedaily. That $1,000 is nice, but you might be making much more since those multiple on-site interviews would put you in a great position to potentially get multiple offers and then you could figure out what your salary actually should be. TripleByte does not look at candidates' backgrounds, like resumes and where they've worked and where they went to school. TripleByte only cares about whether someone can code. So I'm a huge fan of that aspect of their model. This means that they work with lots of people from non-traditional and unusual backgrounds. To get started, just go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily and take a quiz to get started. There's very little risk, and you might find yourself in a great position getting multiple on-site interviews from just one quiz and a triplebyte interview. Go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily to try it out. Thank you to Triplebyte. Triplebyte.